This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, perception is reality. What just happened? And beyond the policy, what to make of the politics? From the fiscal cliff to disaster relief, home for the holidays left many of us in the dark. The polyoptics on this one are tricky indeed. A new Congress and a new year. We're joined by blogger, strategist, and veteran congressional communicator John Fury for a frank, nonpartisan, but highly political dissection of what the heck just happened over the holidays. Then, new media Jim. He is a DC Twitter sensation and the man behind the lens of one of the most powerful news cameras in the country. The NBC News White House photog Jim Long joins us to discuss the digital, the social, and the polyoptic impressions of a career spent on the front lines of American politics. But first, I am joined, as always, from our New York studios by my co-host, Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, Happy New Year. It's great to be back with you in 2013. Adam, my partner, Happy New Year to you as well. Our third calendar year of doing this, about 83 or so episodes in the can. Lots to be thankful for in this new year. Uh, Happy that uh, Secretary of State Clinton is out of the off out of the hospital uh, on the road to recovery. Uh, Congratulations probably due from you and I to uh, a Speaker of the House re-elect John Boehner uh, going to presiding with the gavel over the 113th Congress. Good luck to the guy for with these uh, knuckleheads for the next two years, huh, Adam? Yeah, well, Hillary Clinton gave us all quite a scare. She uh, she is a national treasure, whether you like her politics or you've uh, felt uh, on one side or the other where she's concerned. Uh, it has been some scary times, and to see her back on her feet and moving forward again has been a great optical element as well as a, a bit of reality for us all this week. And John Fury, our first guest, who's here in studio with me in Washington, D.C., fresh from the hill, where that's right, Josh, John Boehner just squeaked by. I mean, we could we say squeaked by, John? First vote. It was a little tighter than it had been before for the speaker. His new nickname is Landslide Boehner. Uh, he had a lot of defections, uh, 219. You want to be well beyond 219. Uh, there was a time in 1931 where the, the, the speaker got only 218 votes. Uh, that was John Nance Garner, who later became the vice president. But uh, 219 is pretty close to the edge for Mr. Boehner, and I think that uh, he's got some work to do to consolidate his power in the next Congress. Well, this is a very uh, special polyoptics week. It's the first week of 2013. A new Congress begins. And Josh, uh, as you know, and I want our listeners to be well aware, John Fury um, spent the entire term of Speaker Dennis Hastert's uh, speakership as his chief spokesman and chief communications uh, advisor. Uh, He's been playing an active role here in Washington, including uh, being the president of QGA Public Affairs, a place where I work when I'm not playing on the radio. It's Sirius XM POTUS, channel 124. Um, But Joshua, uh, 
I, I wasn't kidding in the open. For most Americans, it's been a blur. What the heck did the fiscal cliff mean? Where did it net out? I'm not even sure I understand it right now. I don't either, and that's why I'm, we're so glad to have Fury here. All I know, Adam, is that you know it, it was it was almost predictable from the day that the election was over that we would come down to December 31st into January 2nd uh, before this bill would get signed. This bill would get signed by an auto pen. Uh, President Obama, back in Hawaii, re- reviews the bill, authorizes its signing. For only the third time in history, I think, that the president... All right, what's uh, your take on those optics, though? I mean, I, I, I want to get to Fury here in a second, but, you know, uh, is the, the president put pen to paper on another bill, the defense, defense authorization bill, but as you point out, he auto-penned this while he was on his way to Hawaii. Well, the Constitution uh, only dictates that the president shall sign bills that are enrolled by Congress and sent to the White House for a signature. There was a Justice Department study, I think, back in 2005 under uh, the previous administration, your old boss, George W. Bush, that did not see a constitutional problem with the president signing a bill. But we are used to seeing, Adam, presidents signing either at the desk behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office or in a picturesque setting that makes sense to sign bills, uh, the president doing his job, which is to either sign or veto legislation. Fury, is this inside baseball? Do people give a you-know-what about whether uh, the president of the United States actually signed this bill or auto it? Well, I th- I th- the bigger issue, from my perspective, what are the optics uh, of getting this bill signed as you are flying off to Hawaii to take a vacation when there's so many other pressing things that are that are going on. I mean, Josh is right. There have been auto auto pens been uh, declared constitutional, and it's certainly a thing that you can do. Uh, but obviously, the president had to sign this quickly because otherwise, tax cuts tax uh, the tax cuts from the Bush administration would expire, and then you'd have some real problems. So there was a definite need for him to sign this thing. The question is, you know, could he have done this in a much more uh, dramatic fashion? Uh, as opposed to kind of scurrying away to vacation before he signed it. Hey, John, I was, uh, like Adam, sort of sequestered in my own sequestration over the New Year's holiday, not paying too much attention to email or Twitter, but there was one of your tweets that got sent around a lot by Mm -hmm. those uh, around Washington saying that you're glad you're not working in Congress anymore. One, what was your reaction to the reaction to your tweet, and why did you send that out? Well, because I was in Florida and I kind of want to rub it in. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that the, the fact of the matter is that uh, it's not a very pleasant place to work anymore. You, you know, from when I first came to Congress in 1989, working for Bob Michael, the House Minority Leader at the time, it was kind of a very collegial place. I mean, there you had your, your very tough disagreements, but people seemed to get along on, on both sides of the aisle. Their relationships, for example, uh, George H.W. Bush and Dan Rosinkowski and former colleagues, they, they got along very nicely. Bob Michael and Tip O'Neill was had a great relationship. Uh, Tom Foley and, and Bob Michael got, had a great relationship. That That has all kind of dissipated over the years, and, and really since uh, Bill Clinton got impeached, uh, chiefly by Tom DeLay, it seems to me that, that the partisanship has gotten worse. And to, to the degree where right now there couldn't be a gentleman's agreement to use the Christmas holiday as the backstop uh, to reach reach some sort of a uh, decision point on the fiscal cliff. And you actually had to ruin everybody's vacation between Christmas and New Year's, which is almost unprecedented. It is. Uh, where you are dragging all of the staff and all of the members 
away from their, their families. And the, the thing that people have to understand out there is that most people in Washington go somewhere else for the Christmas uh, holidays. They, they, they travel to see family, and including all the members of Congress. Very few members of Congress actually live here in Washington. And so for, them, for the Congress to be at such odds that they couldn't reach an agreement until uh, the day after New Year's Day, or New Year's Day in this case, is actually shocking and shows you kind of how far down uh, the Congress has gone. Hey, Josh, uh, you know, John Fury has this great website, uh, The Fury Theory. It, it used to be a joke. Uh, how do you say that guy's last name? It's like theory. But John Fury uh, has many theories, uh, mostly about politics. And for those people who follow him on Twitter at John Fury, as, as you and I do, we, we, we're aware of his uh, thoughts on a lot of these day-of-air political stories. But um, I think what I'm most interested in hearing about is maybe just a political assessment, John, of what I think a lot of Americans feel was a real failure on the part of John Boehner to carry a mantle of Republican leadership within the House or even within the Congress to do a deal with the president. And this is the second time he stepped up and failed. Is that fair? Do you think that, that people see it that way? Do, do members see it that way? Well, I, th- I think it, it, it's, it goes beyond John Boehner. I think the relationship between John Boehner and Barack Obama is the real relationship people have to uh, uh, investigate further. And it's not a very good working relationship. I think personally they get along fine, but they, at the end of the day, and if you read Bob Woodward's book on the, the yeah. price of politics, you understand that even Woodward was blaming, uh, he blamed Boehner, but he also really put the blame on, on Obama as the leader. They just are not able to, to conclude a deal. And I think uh, it's been, for me it's fascinating that Boehner couldn't get his plan B through the House uh, because uh, his conservatives simply did not want to uh, raise taxes or have a legislation that would result in raising taxes on anybody. Well, forget partisanship. Uh, but, what about the politics well, of coming I'm, up I'm, with a plan uh, B that wasn't vetted? Well, he, he tried to come up with a plan B. It was B. an optical disaster, it seemed like. Uh, well, it, the, the, I think from Boehner's perspective, he believed that he had the votes and he didn't have them. Uh, and that, that hurt him. And I think what he had to do then was wash his hands of this and leave it over to the Senate to actually conclude the the deal. And the other interesting thing, what happened when Mitch McConnell took up the reins, he didn't deal with Harry Reid, he dealt with Joe Biden. So, yeah, Boehner had his own problems, uh, and there there were significant problems, that he didn't have the support of his colleagues, uh, Republican colleagues in in the House, to do anything substantial that included both tax cuts and spending cuts. Uh, And so he had to shuffle it over to Mitch McConnell, who decided that he wasn't going to deal with Barack Obama, and the McConnell... Obama relationship is terrible. And he also wasn't going to deal with Harry Reid, who I thought he'd deal with, but he dealt with Joe Biden, who everyone calls Joe Biden the McConnell whisperer. Yep. And so, you know, this, this idea that, that is these two old war horses, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden, doing this deal in a very small room um, and really kind of elbowing everybody else out. And ultimately, that was the deal. And the other thing, that, that was the deal that became law. The other interesting thing about this is McConnell's strategy was always to only do tax cuts now, get it over with, and then move uh, on to a discussion about spending cuts. That, that, that communication never made it to the House side. And I think a lot of House members were shocked that there were not any spending cuts in this final deal. There were never supposed to be spending cuts in this final deal. Mitch McConnell has said consistently that there were not supposed to be spending cuts in this well, deal. There, that's what I, Josh, that's what I don't get. 
Well, uh, you know what I'm, I don't get it either. I'm, there, there never was supposed to be. I, I, that's all I heard was that, you know, the Republican caucus says we got to have this. But that's, that, that's what the House Republican caucus said, but that's not what the Senate Republican caucus said. And that's why you have this huge disparity where the senators, Republican senators overwhelmingly voted for this piece of legislation and House members uh, on the Republican side overwhelmingly voted against it and it's, I, it's a fascinating dynamic and it's you know it's you know it's a fascinating dynamic uh adam and john when uh you get the news uh when you get the network cameramen inside the bowels of the capitol watching the caucus as it comes out of its room and seeing these sort of rare pictures of congressmen in the hallways sort of slumping their shoulders saying i don't know what just happened uh you know these are octogenarians who worked who sleep deprived and they handed us this bill without spending cuts i mean there was such mayhem it seemed last week as washington media tried to decipher this and make some sense of it and then there were these stories john about harry reed left on the sidelines and stewing just for the uninitiated for people who don't understand why a senate majority leader or uh why a Senate Majority Leader would be so out of the loop. Can you share what it is about Harry Reid's personality and his leadership compared to that of, like, Bob Dole or George Mitchell, which would have a guy so sidelined on a major deal like this? Well, it's actually it's quite shocking because Reid has not been on the sidelines. I think Reid has a, a testy relationship with the president. I think he has a very good relationship with Joe Biden. Uh, but I was shocked that, that they would put Reid on the sidelines. And I think that Mitch McConnell made the decision that a better person to negotiate with was Joe Biden and not and not Harry Reid. And Harry Reid had kind of the the burden of dealing with the rest of his caucus, uh, whereas Biden could take a more uh, a, a bigger view of, of the situation. Uh, so, you know, when you go, basically when you go into a negotiating room, both sides have their checklists of things that they need to have included in an agreement, things that they can accept, and things that they can't accept. And I, I think that Biden's list was smaller than Reid's list, so I think McConnell decided I'd rather negotiate with with Biden, um, you know, McConnell uh, and 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 Reid have a very very testy relationship, and it's going to get testier because I think that Harry Reid is going to try to pass a change in the Senate rules, which will largely limit the ability to, for for McConnell to use the filibuster, and that's going to cause all kinds of problems for the 113th Congress. So has everybody changed dance partners right up against New Year's Eve? The one person who we here around our proverbial polyoptics table here at uh, Sirius XM POTUS, Channel 124, have not uh, tried to pin the tail on the donkey on is President Obama. And if you woke up and you weren't paying close attention, uh, this is the really the first little bit of inkling that something was actually happening. Thanks to the votes of Democrats and Republicans in Congress, I will sign a law that raises taxes on the wealthiest 2% of Americans while preventing a middle-class tax hike that could have sent the economy back into recession and obviously had a severe impact on families all across America. So President Obama, in front of cameras in the White House press briefing room on uh, New Year's Eve, John, with Joe Biden behind him, the guy who had inked the deal, who had done the whispering, who had carried the ball across the finish line, and yet the President of the United States, newly elected for a second term, basks in the glory of the, of the, of the lights. How did that happen? Well, that's the great thing about being the, the guy who's the boss. When, when you're the boss, you can take credit for all the work that your underlings do, and that's what he did here. The interesting thing is that, that earlier that week, uh, while Biden was negotiating with McConnell, uh, 
Obama did another press conference with several, you know, middle class yeah. people, whoever, who, who knows who they were, and basically, uh, as someone said, they came from the White House tour line. Yeah, they came from the yeah. They, he spiked the football on the five yard line, and that you know, they they hadn't scored yet. They didn't have an agreement, and what Obama said in that press conference infuriated Republicans to such a degree that it almost sidelined the deal. And this is the problem that the president's having is when he does get involved, he gets involved in such a way he screws things up. Uh, so I, I think that for, for Boehner, what Boehner learned this time around is that he's not going to go one-on-one negotiating with President Obama because, A, it doesn't do anything for him, and, B, it really uh, hurts him with his own political base. Because what, what I think Obama, what, what Boehner found himself doing is negotiating with himself. So he puts out a piece of legislation that he gives in on taxes. He say he goes to a million dollar threshold and says, "Let's vote on this." And Republicans are saying, "I'm not going to vote for this. This is crap." And as a result, he almost loses his speakership, as we saw with the vote today. Okay, so he holds on to his speakership, but not without. Oh boy! In the last part of the week, a huge revolt from the remaining Northeastern Republicans, specifically those representing New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, and New York. Uh, and also the governor of New Jersey. Uh, let's hear from Governor Chris Christie as he weighs in now after the uh, sort of stalling of aid from uh, from Hurricane Sandy. Let's hear what Chris Christie had to say. There's only one group to blame for the continued suffering of these innocent victims, the House majority and their speaker, John Boehner. We respond to innocent victims of natural disasters not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans. Or at least we did until last night. Last night, the House of Representatives failed that most basic test of public service. And they did so with callous indifference to the suffering of the people of my state. I called the speaker four times last night after 1120, and he did not take my calls. On a political chessboard of internal palace intrigue politics, our people were played last night as a pawn. And that's why people hate Washington, D.C. That's why they hate this politics. Last night it was my party responsible. Both parties could take plenty of responsibility over time. But last night, my party was responsible for this. John Fury, take us through this piece by piece. How... The Republican governor of New Jersey, a probable 2016 presidential candidate, uh, can make four calls to the speaker, not get them returned, to talk about his constituents as being pawns in a game. You were in Congress with Speaker Hastert post-Katrina. What actually happens after Sandy, the aid is asked for and yet it's held up, was, were th- was the support for the fiscal cliff negotiations a... a bargaining chip here. Why is Chris Christie so mad at John Boehner at this point? Well, I think both Chris Christie and Peter King and the members of the uh, the New York delegation uh, and New Jersey delegation are mad is because they wanted this money. Um, and they thought it was going to happen. They want to they get it moving as quickly as possible. I think what the dynamic was uh, after this vote where Boehner saw you know most of his members abandon him, that he couldn't sustain, especially with the speaker's job coming up, uh, vote coming up the next couple of days, he couldn't sustain uh, having another vote on a package of spending that his members had very little input on and that uh, some members, and especially in the House side, felt was full of pork. 
So this is the problem. You have a dichotomy where uh, this disagreement between these members in the Northeast who desperately want this money so to show their constituents that they are going to deliver for them, and then this dynamic in the House where Cantor said, let's bring this thing up and get it over with. Boehner said, I do not want to have this go on now because I have a job, uh, basically an interview for a job tomorrow, and if this goes the wrong way and people kind of revolt against me, uh, I'm in big trouble. And, you know, the part of this is the deficit dynamics uh, that are roiling, roiling the Republican caucus. You know, they believe that we're on a deficit track. If you spend $60 billion on New Jersey and New York and now don't really know where all that money is coming going to, I mean, that could be a very tough dynamic when people are very, very tired. And I think that Boehner made this decision at being exhausted. And I think one of the reasons Boehner didn't call Christie back was he was busy. He was trying to see where, where the votes were and try to get this, this bigger fiscal cliff legislation passed. So I guess we all uh, learned a little bit about what can happen if you don't call Chris Christie back. <laughs> He's going to bite you in the ass on national television but in the middle yeah, of the day. And we all know that Chris Christie is an emotional guy. We saw what he did with... Uh, and people like that about him. They like the fact that he's a big, effusive, emotional guy, and that he cares about his constituents, and they appreciate that about him. You know, obviously, for the Republican base, they find that the big wet kiss that Christie gave Obama right after Sandy was a little bit too much to take, and that's going to hurt him in the in the primary. And this this attacking of Boehner, you know, Boehner's not particularly well-beloved by conservative activists, but, you know, him pushing so hard for $60 billion more, $60 billion more in spending is not necessarily going to make him hap- uh, people happy in Iowa and New Hampshire. I just wonder uh, whether or not we just entered into a polyoptics be damned zone. You know, the president said he was never going to put out a signing statement uh, with a piece of legislation. He went ahead and did that here um, with with this fiscal cliff legislation. He then uh, got on Air Force One at supposedly some, you know, north of $7 million cost to return to Hawaii for a few days, uh, auto-pen the thing. The Republicans, it would appear, are in disarray, uh, great, great un, you know, lack of confidence in the Speaker of the House, uh, being lambasted by a prominent governor of his own party. John, I mean, we're, we're, we're coming up on one of the most polyoptically, usually polished elements of political theater, which is the inauguration of a president. And here we are just... You know, we can't even keep our drinks in the glass. They're spilling everywhere. Well, it's interesting. I, I think you make a very good point, and that is that people are tired. It's during the holiday season. People want to be something somewhere else. Yeah. Everyone wants to be somewhere else, and they want to be doing something else. What they don't want to be doing is arguing any, anymore over whether taxes should go up or not. And I think that when you have exhaustion and you, you have everybody exhausted, not just the, the principals but also their staff and also their communications people, and they don't care about the picture. They just care about getting back to their family, and that's what they did. So, John, as we as we move on into this new year, look forward to the inauguration of uh, the re-inauguration of President Obama. Uh, in many ways, a historic term potentially coming because uh, he doesn't have a war to deal with, as George W. Bush did. He doesn't have a scandal to deal with or looming as President Clinton did. So we have potentially a a second term in which President Obama could actually try and govern uh, and make deals with Congress. Uh, one image that will leave us in 2012 that you commented a lot on that I'd love you to sort of leave Adam and me and our listeners with is the thought of uh, former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole standing to salute uh, uh, the passing of Senator Danny Inouye and his 
his view that he didn't want to see Senator Inouye uh, sitting in a wheelchair as he bid him farewell. These were two guys, members of our greatest generation, who served together in Italy, profoundly wounded, the rest of their lives shattered, except they rebuilt their lives, worked together on opposite sides of the aisle in Congress, and had this enduring friendship until the very end. What does You wrote about this, so what does the that image of Dole saying farewell to Inouye talk about the image of Republicans and Democrats potentially able to work together in the future. Well, you know, the sad thing about Bob Dole is he was on the Senate floor when uh, the Senate was debating a treaty on uh, dis- dis- disabilities, and most Republican senators voted against the Sen- Senator Dole. I mean, I, I think there's a, just a real lack of appreciation for the Greatest Generation and what they what they went through, and with that, kind of a what Danny Inouye, my former boss Bob Michael, uh, Bob Dole, they saw war. They saw the, the the worst part of war, and they know the difference between war and politics. And they could, they understood that politics is a much more mature way to resolve problems. And I think that they were always very respectful of the other side because they appreciated that if that respect breaks down, what can happen to a society and how how quickly a, a society can kind of. Uh, devolve into uh, warfare. And I, and I think they, they desperately didn't want that to happen. Uh, you know, we all have to take a, a, a better understanding of how of the stakes that we are all fighting at and how important it is to respect everybody in the political spectrum, that everyone has their views. And if you do not have the proper amount of respect for the other people and for the system, and if the system breaks down, we could all be in a world of hurt. The Fury Theory, that's where you find him on the web, thefurytheory.com, and you can find him at Twitter, uh, at John Fury. John, thanks for coming back and being here for a second go-around in 2013 on Polyoptics. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. One of the uh, must-subscribe Twitter feeds in Washington is one called at New Media Jim, Josh, somebody uh, who has been around Washington for a long time, involved in presidencies that you've been involved in, that I've been involved in, ones that are still going on now, and uh, he calls himself a, uh, a new media disruptive uh, content creator. His name is Jim Long, and he's with us in studio. How are you? Good to see you guys. Welcome to Polyoptics, my I'm friend. I'm very, very happy to be here. Actually, my Twitter bio, I call myself a uh, a new media soul trapped in an old media body. That's right. <laughs> uh, and you, you should uh, combine those two gently with a stir. Yeah, right. Especially <laughs> on the old media body side. Or as your wife says, Jim, uh, if you were such a new media pioneer, why don't you get paid for it? Yeah, that's prank? right. Yeah, boy, she really keeps me grounded. I love her. <laughs> um, Josh, you and I know, and I think it's important for uh, for our listeners on Polyoptics to understand here at SiriusXM, POTUS channel, that uh, if if you do a job like being a, a White House production chief and you're involved in an interview, whether it's uh, an impromptu Sunday show in the Blue Room, say, right uh, before the New Year, or even in a remote location in the middle of Africa, there are a few faces that engender confidence like none other. And Jim, you and 
Rodney, who's another one of your partners Absolutely. over there at NBC. Yep. You know, and Rodney's over the years, and he's he's embarrassed to hear this, but he's he's certainly been sort of a, a, a mentor to me, whether he likes it or not. I mean, you know, he's well. You both have been mentors to all of us. I yeah, think. I but but you know, you come. I came in there, um, and and I really have to to thank NBC News for all the opportunities I've had over the years. Um, I grew up. When there were such a thing, I grew up in an NBC family. My parents watched NBC News, and I always wanted to be part of that. I thought it was amazing. So here I am. Now I'm an NBC News cameraman, and it's fantastic. And there's, it's. Were you a visualist from the earliest? You know, I think uh, kids who grow up with TV naturally have uh, visual literacy, just as as kids who grow up today are digital natives. Um, I think you know the the they they understand intrinsically social media and things like that. When we were growing up, we understood TV and how the the grammar and the language of film and television. So, and was it just those long hours of stakeout, either at the White House or at the Capitol, or uh, as part of a pool that said when you weren't part of a planning assignment for a pool, you were doing sort of stakeout coverage? Did you say? boy, I could put this time to much more effective use if I shared what I was actually seeing with people. <laughs> well, the, the, the strange, my sort of ascent into social, social media uh, and the you know, discovery of social media and integrating it into my life was, uh, was interesting. I, I saw this stuff you know, sort of percolate up, Twitter and blogging and things like that, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. You know, people are out there, they're, they're podcasting, they're blogging. And wow, this is really kind of neat. And the more I dug into it, the more it became apparent that media and attention, media attention was becoming fragmented. Mm. And, you know, there's how many Sirius XM channels, there's how many right. cable channels. Now it's how, how many bloggers there are, how many people there were on Twitter and things like that. Um, so it it occurred to me and it became apparent that you know this was going to impact the economic but you have a very unique voice and you're you have a great uh, confidence in in yourself uh, in this digital realm and that i think is what appeals to so many people you you have a front row to history uh like very few people and you bring us all along with you through the lens of that camera that you put on your shoulder for nbc news but uh what goes on when the cameras are off in the places that you go and the people that you deal with and all of the things that you're able to consume, these are the things that you reflect back, I feel like, so well uh, for your followers. We're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people who are following you on Twitter. Talk about that. Is it, I mean, that, that differentiates you from your colleagues uh, as, as you walk onto the ground to the White House every day, doesn't it? Not as much anymore because I think people in television and in media, ultimately they, they grasped on to Twitter um, and I, I will sort of single Twitter out because it, it's perfect for people in journalism and in media. Um, and, and some folks really latched onto it and have done great things with it. And in fact, much better things than I could ever do. Um, but nonetheless, I, when I first joined, there were 10,000 of us. I was mm-hmm. member number 10,450 or something like that. And we were trying to figure out how the thing worked. And it worked differently back then than it does now. But at the early stage, it was populated mainly by Silicon Valley people, venture capital people, tech people, development people, and those kind of folks. So along comes this guy who tweets things like, oh, I'm at the White House today. Oh, I'm about to get on Air Force One. And to some, it was just 
sort of this sort of wow moment of like, that's different than what we see on here. Um, and to other people, I believe, I believe this to be true, it validated the platform. They said, aha, see, old media gets it. And I thought to myself, no, I'm just trying to figure out what the next thing is. But, you know, so I was, I was sort of getting on board with it to see where new media was going to take my career potentially because I, you know, it, it, it was all this stuff, blogging, podcasting, all of this other new media was disruptive to old media. So I wanted a foot in, in both of those yeah, It's places. funny, Josh King uh, was really out there in his own way. Well, you talk about it, Josh, about where you were uh, in 97 and what you were thinking about and doing with, with your writing and uh, new media. I mean, I learned a lot, I guess, Adam and Jim from Rich Galen, uh, who's one of the early guys with Mullings. Mullings, yeah. And um, and we were start, and I was trying to figure out, well, what do you do after the White House? And and part of it was to go to Hollywood and be a screenwriter or or a, or a TV series uh, executive producer, and uh, uh, you know that <clears throat> requires really just hitting the jackpot uh, with agents and producers and networks. And then what was so uh, liberating was that you could come back to Washington, D.C. and uh, for very little money back then put up, you know, what was what used to be called, uh, it wasn't called a blog, it was just sort of a, an online column. And so Rich, we started this thing called speakout.com and raised some money and Rich came in and, and brought Mullings there for a while and I sort of countered that on the, on the left with wanderings and we sort of covered the 98, 99 uh, Gore v. Bush election that way, and it was a huge amount of fun, but no way to monetize it. I mean, and and because we're really kicking ass at doing that now. And, yeah, exactly. And, and there were and there were so right, few, Catherine Caperton. <laughs> and there were so few followers, Jim. I mean, how did you evolve your own sort of creative and artistic eye from using electronic news gathering equipment that the network supplies you? with what you currently use and these gorgeous pictures that picture. you supply, you know, day in, day out to your forty you know, twenty five thousand somewhat followers. Yeah. A simple tip that I would give to anybody with an iPhone, sometimes you gotta get on your belly. Get on your hands and knees to get that picture. You gotta earn that picture. Sometimes I get on the ground and I get my clothes all dirty and it's it's that and the filters that, that make the picture. Um you know, for goodness sake, I've had a camera on my shoulder for twenty yeah, some years. There's an artist side. I, I, side I there should too. I should have picked up a couple of things, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, yeah, I, I I there are little moments and there are little behind the scenes moments, little iconic images that I see every day. And without the iPhone or the little camera in your pocket, you just sort of you you remember them or you incorporate them into a story that you're working on. But with the with the iPhone, you can you can send those little snippets, those ephemeral images, but yet yet they're iconic, and I think people understand the uh, the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, Jim Long of NBC News, White House photographer and known to the world at New Media Jim on Twitter is our guest here on Polyoptic Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Jim, tell us. Uh, You've been at the White House on a full-time basis since around 1996 or so. You've been in the business uh, longer than that. Uh, 
take us back to the Clinton administration. Uh, the camera on your shoulder, shooting some of the biggest interviews. Um, what what stood out? What even from a polyoptics perspective, Josh King helped sort of set so many of the standards that we followed up with in the H. I mean, in the George W. Bush White House. But Clinton was very visual and was just very at ease in front of the camera, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, he well, he was at ease with people, and and that came across. And often the the looks on people's faces in the audience was what caught my eye. I mean, people people loved him, and you you could tell, and people would want to reach out to him and, and you know and be part of that. Um, and to be fair, I'm a, a specifically a general assignment cameraman, often assigned to the. That's right. For, so there there are a group of people who yeah, uh, Josh, yeah. as you know, who were planted there. Not yeah. to say that they're potted plants, but yeah, right. they, they enough, literally yeah, live exactly. there. But you come and go on some of the oh, biggest yeah, assignments yeah. abroad and, and, and domestically with the president. Trips. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about this one over the Christmas holiday, not really expected while you're on vacation. What happened? Uh, the interview. Well, uh, I was at home. Uh, the interview. Yes, the, the Meet the Press interview, David Gregory and the president. I was at home and enjoying my uh, time with family. And, uh, you know, you get that call and you got to step up and... Uh, all the troops came in to do... How much time did you have before this thing, like from, from the from the genesis of, okay, we're going to do this interview to when you were putting sticks down in the blue room? How much lead time did you guys get? I, I had a day. I don't know what the, the planning was at higher levels, but I had a, a day of notice. And, uh, you know, we, we got in there and fortunately uh, the place was empty. It was it was a Saturday. We were able to get in there and get set up and we utilized the, uh, the blue room, which is great because... You, you get this beautiful depth when they open up the doors to the green and red room. And from a camera person perspective, that's just well, wonderful. Well, Josh, you pointed out that the White House likes to use that that look themselves for a lot of the, the Saturday uh, radio slash YouTube addresses. Yeah, I mean, it used to be in Reagan's time and Clinton's time uh, and George W. Bush's time, just the, the president's Saturday radio address. And in the Obama years, it has become uh, the Saturday address, strike radio, use high-def TV, often use the blue room. Um, and, you know, in my time, Jim, I would have been sort of very on top of the orchestration and design of where the seats go, at least, obviously trying to goad the lighting technicians into the, the tint and color that I wanted to see and, and hopefully get the, the background shots. How, uh, how much is, are you working with um, Betsy and the other producers of Meet the Press versus the White House staff who has also been called in from vacation who wants to see a specific shot. How much back and forth to and froing was there to, to make this Meet the Press setup the way either the White House wanted it or the way Betsy Fisher, David Gregory wanted it? Ultimately, as as you know, and you have received pushback from, you know, from us before, yeah. we, we are not the mouthpiece of the White House. We are not the propaganda organization mm-hmm. of the yeah. White House. And frankly, it's camera guys, veteran camera guys have some opinions of their own, as you might imagine. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, this is important for people to realize. And, I mean, and, and Josh and I would be there on our sides for respective presidents, but, you know, this is this is a detente dealing with veteran White House photographers. Right. Uh, right. You know, it, you step carefully, Josh. Is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, you know, I, we should have this out because there's a definite tension. And, uh, you know, you, I would even go as far to say, Jim, and I'll admit it here to you and to Adam, that, you know, maybe on a coffee break, if I didn't like quite like where the sticks start were, I'd, I'd start to <laughs> nudge them around a little bit. <laughs> Rodney caught me doing that to him once. <laughs> we it didn't end so well for me. Adam, that didn't end well, did it? No. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's you know, it's funny. I uh, every presidency we at NBC News we do uh, Day in the Life of the White House, yeah. which is a wonderful special. It's it, it's wonderful to work on. Twenty two um, cameras. Twenty two cameras. So with. The first Within one, that. Josh, was, was with you guys, right? Well, Brokaw used to do them all the time. We, he, I, I think he did it prior to... I think he did uh, George W. George H.W. Yes, before yes, okay. yep, 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 he did. Um, but there's, there are, with those 22 cameras, with all that coverage, there are going to be some, some telling, revealing moments, despite how much you guys try to orchestrate that stuff. Um, and one that really stuck out in my mind was from the Obama administration. Brian uh, Williams is in the limousine with the president, and they do an OTR to a uh, to a burger shop. Yep. And the the limo pulls up, and an aide comes up to the limousine and says, uh, "Mr. President, we have to wait for the press, the travel pool, to get in place inside the burger joint." And the president says something to the effect, and I'm, I'm probably not quoting verbatim, but he said, well, we don't need any media. <laughs> like impatient, And he said it kind of impatiently. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, in this day and age, yeah, sure, there is still a symbiotic relationship between a White House and the media, as in the traditional mm-hmm. media, but they have their own media. They are the media just as much... As we are. That's a really important point, Josh. We we I always feel like feed, I always feel know, like we don't video. talk about it yeah. enough. But before we came on the air today, Josh, what did you say to me? Well, I thought we should talk about the latest Pete Souza release of eighty three <laughs> images from two thousand twelve. <laughs> the coffee table book. Yeah. yeah. I mean but no, but yeah, but King is right. I mean and, and you are right. Yeah. It, it it is not a symbiotic relationship. I mean it it, it is. Yeah. But, but both sides are uh, doing the other's role, but yeah. let me let me press Jim Long on one okay. thing, uh, which is uh, to to the extent that you feel like you have your independence, and uh, versus perhaps you are more a mouthpiece. And I'll push it in this way, Jim, which is. Um, very rarely in uh, the Reagan years, uh, Bush years, Clinton years, and Bush two years, did the president-elect to use a teleprompter. State of the unions, yes. Inaugurals, yes. Some major address or a uh, or a commencement, possibly. But not day in and day out. And yet, in the, the last four years, and presumably looking forward to the next four years, you can expect President Obama to use this tool that's run by the White House Communications Agency on a pretty much daily basis. And you as the cameraman have the decision and opportunity to either push into the tight shot and not reveal that the president is reading off of panels or to keep it medium or wide and show that, you know, the president is basically reading script versus communicating directly with his audience. So I might posit that there is a extent to which pool producers, cameramen and networks cooperate very much with a White House by going so tight in that they create the illusion of this uh, perfect speaker who can speak in full paragraphs without using a script whatsoever. I I don't know that that much thought goes into the framing of the shot. I mean, if, if I got those things in my shot, I think they're annoying to look at. I think they're distracting. So I will try to frame them out. But, you know, if, if folks who have replaced you don't give me an alternative in terms of the framing. If if that's what I got, hey, that's what I got, and I'm not, you know, I'm not paid uh, to make any politician look good. I'm paid to do the job that NBC News has assigned me to do. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, 
I'm not trying to do anybody any favor. It's it's just an aesthetic thing for most yep. camera folk, I think. Well, let me follow up on that question there because we talk about framing. Um, a lot of the things that we we would think about in the Bush administration, uh, Scott's Forza era, and things that, that Bobby D. Yeah, Bobby D. Who I talked by the way <laughs> to Bob DeServi. Oh, um, uh, love me some Bobby D. Just the other, I was like just the other night yeah. we're airing over the weekend, and uh, I've already started to lay the groundwork to bring Bobby oh. D. to Polyoptics. He uh, had his own language. Yes, uh, and, he is and a I'm sure very was, interesting yeah, soul. Yeah. But but oh. it was the philosophy though that if you give cameramen something to frame to, a, a piece of visual interest or a message, that you know if you if you build it they will come. Mm-hmm. This idea that the visual interest, the message uh, resonance, so you could reinforce the message visually, was really important, and that in the absence of things to frame to, you'll get sort of the lowest common denominator shot. And if there's something to strive for. Uh, videographers and photographers will do that. Is that true? Do you feel that way, or do you try not to be manipulated? I mean, you know, this isn't NBC News speaking. This is Jim Long. This is one man uh, with a camera who's out there every day on the front lines making, you know, difficult calls. Camera people see things and go, ooh, look, shiny. You know, yeah. and and we see things that appeal to us, and, and we're going to go for it. I mean, just visually, things, that's how we think. You know, we think storytelling. We think sequential shooting. We think, wow, that'll that'll look really nice. Um, and I I won't say which president because I don't want anybody to you know leave all these flame war comments on your blog or whatever. But uh, we should I, be so lucky. Yeah, right. <laughs> At New Media Jim, please. I I remember there was a president speaking, uh, and I was getting the cut shots, and there was this circular emblem that was lit it was sort of hit with a little bit of light and if you frame that president's head within that it lo- it looks sort of like a halo like it a just, halo yeah, it was yeah. Just a, i'm thinking this was us by the way no no it was just a weird kind of crazy shot and who knows if anybody used it you know i was travel pool that day right. so that tape got distributed to all five networks you know abc cbs cnn fox nbc so everybody got a piece of that picture but you know just one of those things huh that's weird i think i will take a picture of that can i ask that quick question uh josh and i debate this sometimes but you know as a as a newsman which you are uh when you're doing pool duty do you do you think of it differently i mean do you feel like your responsibility to not just the other networks but to americans yes eyes and ears eyes and ears yeah i mean always eyes and ears that's that's what i Bring to the table. I am the eyes and ears for everybody who watches. Um, so yeah, and and plus when you're you're there because nobody else can be there. Nobody yet. else does, can be there yeah, except for Jim Long or enough, someone else, and not enough room. I what mean, we know. know is what you can yeah, show us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a big responsibility. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if it wasn't for for ABC Shelley, uh, we wouldn't have seen uh, John Hinckley shoot Ronald Reagan. Shelley Fieldman, NBC. And he still works today. He's he's now. What on about the clock Hank? I, you know, because I came from ABC. Hank Brown. Yeah, Hank Brown. It was yeah. our our guy who captured. Yeah, both of them were there. Yeah, right they the, were. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how small this town of a Washington of DC history. is. A and, lot of history. But the people who who really know it the best, and Josh is just a a huge uh, consumer of history of the presidency as well. Uh, he'll tell you it's it's the photographers and the still photographers. A lot of institutional knowledge. Uh, yeah, and look, uh, Adam, you know, George W. Bush serves eight years, 
Clinton serves eight years, uh, Obama will serve eight years, but uh, across that entire span of 24 years, there are among uh, among Jim's colleagues, people who've been here from beginning to end, you know? Shelley's first day on the job, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. That is a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and where was he? He was in D.C. and they flew him to Texas. So he got put on a plane and went to Dallas. Yep. yep. You know, uh, the 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 amount of people and the amount of technology that it takes to cover a president is staggering, isn't it? It is, and the logistics too. And and you know, I think back to the uh, uh, the Clinton era, which is when I first began to do some of this international travel. Yeah. Um, just the logistics of getting all this gear, the press charter. It's it's a machine. It's this giant geared machine that just sort of churns and keeps keeps everybody moving. You know, you get on the charter, you land, the the buses are right there, you go right off to the workspace, you know, you, you've slept on the plane hopefully and you get right to work. In fact, we went to Turkey with President Clinton. Uh, I don't remember the year, but I remember there was a Discovery Channel crew along the ride with us to do a story about sleep deprivation. <laughs> Jim, it's one thing to be sleep deprived on the press charter and to go to the workspace. It's another thing to be sort of with Richard Engel and his crew uh, behind uh, uh, lines in Syria. Any feedback you've got from your colleagues who are with Richard and what that experience was like? I not not personally, and frankly, I've been through some harrowing stuff myself. And I I think those guys should just get some rest and and stay safe. God bless them all, and I'm so happy that all of them made it back safely. You know, we we've had uh, a friend of uh, to both Josh and myself and to you, someone you worked with for a long time, Antoine Sinfuentes, when he was uh, the Washington bureau chief for NBC News. Here, he was on the show. He's since moved to New York and taken an even more important role within NBC News. But I was wondering if you'd share your perspective on a story that he shared with us, and it, and it sort of goes to the logistics. Uh, and, and the elements of what it takes to put light in a box, as we say in television. Uh, you and Antoine and a couple other folks uh, whisked away in the middle of the night. That was amazing. To the, go to the, Iraq. The, yeah, to Al-Assad. Talk about Air that. Base. Well, it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, I, I'd been to Iraq in 2003 with Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. And I was with Jim McLeshevsky, and he and I were in the Al uh, Rashid Hotel when it was hit by 16 rockets. And that was a pretty harrowing experience. So my successive trips back, I've always been a little, with, with some trepidation. Um, but this, you know, this was one of those ones where I, at least you felt pretty safe. Al-Assad is a huge base. We were flying in with the Big Bird, which meant we weren't going to corkscrew in on a C-17 or something like that. So you knew you felt, you know, look, it was going to be a, you're with the president, safest place on earth, right? You know? So uh, what leading up to it, though, was pretty Tom Clancy. But you guys it. were the the only way that this signal was going to get out, that the world was going to see it. And we you're had to always pack the people. <laughs> talk about pack. this. Well, you know, we, we, we packed a flyaway satellite dish onto Air Force One and not so small not as small as the no, word flyaway would no. make you think it yeah, is no, folks. it was a pretty big setup and uh, we had some great technicians to, to, to make that happen um, but the whole sort of Tom Clancy cloak and dagger aspect of it getting phone calls from the deputy bureau chief saying uh, Jim you're going on a trip 
It's windy. Can't tell you yeah. where. Yes. Windy. Can't can't tell you where. And you know everybody knows what that means at this point. When they can't tell you where, there's only one place you're going. Um, and getting on to Andrews Air Force Base and giving up your cell phones. And we had to hide from Secretary Gates' pool crew. Uh, the CBS pool crew was going off on a trip with the Secretary of Defense. You're not the only other, you're not the only players on the field. That's right. And so we're on base and we have to hide from them and I'm on the phone with the assignment desk who thinks I'm coming in on Monday morning for some Capitol Hill assignment or something. So such. the charade has to extend yes, that far. Yes, it is it's operational security. And look, that's very important to me at a you know, at a personal level because I've been on the bad end of operational security gone wrong. So that, you know, it's important to keep operational security when you're when you're given secrets you keep them. Uh so yeah, we have to sort of lie to the assignment desk and say, Yeah, well yeah, I'll be there on Monday, sure, eight AM, gotcha. And meanwhile I'm with my boss and I'm going to Iraq. And, you know, you sneak onto the base, they take your phones, you're driven into the hangar where town number twenty eight thousand and twenty nine thousand, the big bird Air Force One you know, and it's and it's backup aircraft are sitting there nose to nose, lots of armed, heavily armed people, and you get on the plane and the windows are shut and and you wait, and then all of a sudden you were we were on our way. It was uh, it was amazing. It was quite a trip. At what point en route uh, do you know your destination? Oh well, for this we knew, um, you know, beforehand. Yeah. But I have been uh, with Secretary Rice. Uh, where we've been on the plane, and <laughs> you know the the plans have changed when the DS agents change from their suits to uh, to their desert khakis. khakis and desert boots, and you know, so <laughs> and the uh, the tactical vests. One of the things that uh, you know, as we sort of wrap up this interview with New Media Jim at New Media Jim on Twitter, Jim Long, uh, at Verge New Media, and uh, my side hustle, <laughs> my side hustle. Um, <laughs> Uh, the 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 White House pool is really, for lack of a better word, a death watch, right? It's just sort of yes, my the travel pool. Yes, right? anyway. my understanding that it did in fact come out of the Warren Commission report. I, I somebody would have to fact check me on that. But I, I usually right. I turn to Josh King yeah. for that. Yes, you know, that's absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Affirmed by King. Um, and and one of the things, and Josh, you probably have have had more experiences. Than, than me is that there's this one car in the in the uh in the entourage in the motorcade <laughs> the where van yeah the van where there's like a oh, there's a sunroof yeah and yeah, somebody yeah. gets up there right. and hangs at uh, the roof right. where they can't that's you that's me i've got that doesn't I've, look I've got like fun it's it depends it depends it's not fun on the highway because the, you know it's like a wind tunnel the whole duty got a lot less fun when they uh stopped making the old country squire drop back wagons uh, yeah those yeah. general motor units uh or ford you know you could put the tailgate back and jim could could stand on the tailgate grab the roof uh grab the roof rack keep the camera on his other shoulder and shoot as as long as you could until you got what up to you'd, you'd shoot at 65 miles an hour wouldn't you yeah yeah i would that's I, insanity I are you kidding me i was uh i was in a motorcade with obama and we were uh on the the dulles greenway i think and yeah 65 you know 
My cheeks were full of hair. And... <laughs> Jim Long, I hope <laughs> you will come look. back. We're lucky, oh, and I want to say this, that, that uh, NBC News uh, is always so incredibly generous and kind to Polyoptics. And to uh, me for letting me come on. Yeah, it's we're really real grateful yeah. uh, and, to Ken and Strickland. For the, and for the career I've had there. It's, just, yeah. it's been fantastic. Well, you guys are just you know a phenomenal group of professionals and great friends to us. Happy New Year. Thanks for being with us on Polyoptics. Happy New Year to you guys, and really, really happy to be on here today. Thanks, Jim. So, Adam, John Fury, Jim Long, uh, you know, and only do you get a combination like that on polyoptics. And I know one place you won't get it anymore is current TV. (laughs) That's right. Al Jazeera America takes over current TV and boy, their viewership starts to drop. It looks like Al Gore was a bit of a uh, uh, programming savant. He wanted to make sure the sale went through, I think, before the end of the new year or shortly thereafter and make sure that uh, at least he isn't affected by any tax increases. Well, we're not affected by any tax increases here at Polyoptics. We're part of POTUS at SiriusXM. That's one down in 2013. Josh will be right back here on POTUS next week. See you next week, Adam. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. (laughs) 